I mean, tell me if you want to start there about what happened with your studies and, and where you're at now with it. Mm -hmm. um, did you want to do that here or did you want me to prep like before we record? No, we're recording. Oh, we're recording. I'm sorry. I, I, told, I told you, I think. But maybe I just thought I told you. No, that's okay. But if you need to support clownfish no, here no. while we record. Okay. I don't need any support animals. I'm good. I have my apple juice and my water. Brilliant. Perfect. Well, my name is Ben Appel. I'm a writer uh, living in New York. I'm a husband. I have a book coming out um, next year. It's tentatively titled Cis White Gay, just to play on this new slur that's come out of the new um, progressive, woke progressive LGBTQIA community. And it's really going to just be an uncensored memoir about um, my experience leaving Christian fundamentalism and encountering a new fundamentalism in university and everything that's happened since then. Um, and the liberation that I encountered kind of pulling myself away from, from all of that dogma and social group think and purity policing. What on earth um, got you back to university or, it, or to university? Yeah, so, you know, it was really my work on the marriage equality campaign in Maryland. And I wasn't this, you know, um, eats, sleeps, and, and uh, lives activist, but I was peripherally involved with that campaign. And really it was a selfish campaign for me because I had met my now husband in late 2011. And prior to that, I thought, you know, marriage is an antiquated institution. Um, you know, it benefits but a few. It's, um, I don't think that, you know, gay men are perhaps inclined to be in long-term monogamous relationships, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, I met him in late 2011 and we did fall in love and it was about a few months after we were married, I mean, sorry, we, we were dating that I realized that I did want to marry him. And meanwhile, in the Maryland State Legislature in the beginning of 2012, the same-sex marriage act passed. So same-sex marriage was, was made legal with the, uh, qualifier that it wouldn't be it wouldn't go into effect until the beginning of uh, 2013 so that conservatives in the state would have the chance to get enough signatures to put the bill on the November ballot in 2012 um, for referendum so they said that was the negotiating that that Republicans and Democrats had done in in the legislature so there was a battle and I suddenly had a hat in the ring because this was important to me. And so I became involved. Um, and there was an offshoot of Equality Maryland called Marylanders for Marriage Equality and we met and discussed tactics and messaging. Um, and so I you know, spread the word and um, then on election day I electioneered at the, at the polls um, for that um, legislation and we won and it was four states that day that actually won their um, their campaigns for gay rights Washington Maine and Maryland all legalized at the ballot box same-sex marriage and in Wisconsin they voted down a constitutional ban on same-sex marriage so it was a huge win and I was thrilled. It was, it was, and I, I don't, I'm not being, you know, hyperbolic here. It was, it, 
fundamentally transformed my, my perspective of what was possible in life because I was coming out of religious fundamentalism as a kid and all of my adult life was this, I was dogged by this idea that God or, or whatever was against me, forces were against me, public opinion would never change and, and the majority thought I was bad or evil or deviant and not deserving of equal rights. Um, and I was very cynical and pessimistic and I was convinced that we were gonna lose. And it just flipped for me that, you know, we won by a, a slim margin, like 52 to 48%, but just that 4% knowing that there was a greater amount of Maryland voters, or likely even more than that because of how many people vote, that approved of this, was in immensely validating. And I felt kind of really lifted up by that. And so I wanted to keep chasing that feeling. Um, and shortly thereafter, there was a transgender rights legislation campaign in Maryland for anti-discrimination, an anti-discrimination law for um, transgender people. And so I just got involved in that. I thought, well, you know, this is another way with this organization, Equality Maryland, that I can get involved and advocate for people that are marginalized and part of, you know, my community um, is how I saw it. And, um, and that was me sitting with senators at the Capitol in Annapolis, um, talking with them about the importance of the legislation and, and attending a rally there. And so time passed, you know, this was early 2013, then 2014, at the end of 2014, my husband and I got married, and two months after we were married on Christmas Eve, we were having dinner at a, at a um, restaurant in Baltimore, which is near where we lived at the time. And I said to him, I want to do more with my life. I was a hairstylist at the time. I had been for 13 years after I dropped out of college the first time due to drugs and drinking and all types of mental health issues. And, um, you know, I had recovered and was recovering and had been sober for many years. And I said, you know, it's time for me to, to go back to school. I really want to do this. And he said, you just need to go for it, you know, now or never. So I enrolled two weeks later at the local community college and I took an English course and a, a, a United States history course, then a you know, Spanish class, et cetera, et cetera. And I went to school part-time while working full-time for a year with the intention of when I discovered that at Columbia University in New York, they have a program for non-traditional students. Tell me about growing up in a fundamentalist community. It was called the Lamb of God. The women of the leaders of this community were called handmaids, literally, and the men were called the coordinators. They were the male leaders, and, and there were the husband masters, and the women were, you know, supposed to be submissive to their husbands. Um, you know, he was the, the governor of the household. Um, and she was not without respect, certainly. She had a job and she had um, a place, but, you know, of course, it was really super restrictive. And then, you know, we were ripped out of that community and excommunicated from it when my, my parents decided to leave, particularly my mother, and placed in public school. And I was viciously bullied and developed all of these mental health issues and a drug and drinking problem at the age of 12 and 13 as a result of that. So, you know, I think that suddenly I was a sodomite. You know, suddenly I was this, this deviant, this sinner. 
and that probably you know Im impacted my mental health too looking back but I think the cocaine had a lot to do with it as well you know I was just picking up the pieces of all this stuff like for years I was trying to just get better I had profound PTSD symptoms and very severe OCD um, in the form of what's called scrupulosity which I had this immense so my OCD compulsions were prayer and ritualistic stuff. So when we were taken out of this community and prayer was such a huge part of our everyday life, we would pray over each other and cry and speak in tongues and all that kind of thing. And when we left this community and I was bullied and my family life fell apart at home and everything was really chaotic, I was kind of developed this idea that it was all because of me or my fault or I had control that somehow if I've repented to God enough for all how bad I was for every little tiny sin that I committed whether it was thinking someone's haircut was ugly or um, whatever that uh, he would shield me he would he would he would find you know not see it fit to punish me and so I you know, went to school, you know, fast forwarding back to where I had left off, I went to school, then I was accepted into Columbia in early 2016. I deferred for a semester so we could scrounge a little bit more money together before we made the move to New York. And we moved to New York in December, not like actually a month after Trump was elected, um, which was profoundly devastating for us and for, you know, it was really, we were very unmoored by that, but I felt, you know, well, thank God that I'm going back to university where I can learn and get really educated and be the activist that I need to and want to be and to hashtag resist against this new regime that's, you know, um, coming in. And so that was really helpful. And so my first semester began in January 2017. Immediately what I started to encounter at the university, and looking back, you know, I expected a lot. I think these folks were really young. I mean, not all of them, because there were, of course, a lot of non-traditional students like me who were of all different ages. But here I am in my 30s, so I have this benefit of going to this university after having lived a life, okay, or at least a good um, part of my life, where a lot of these, these young students were profoundly privileged and coddled. And so I... I didn't, I was naive to that dynamic. I was very naive to that. So when I saw the way that they were behaving, I was confused. Like, for example, I thought, well, you know, here we have this American evangelical in, in, in the vice presidency, okay, and then we have Trump in office, and who knows what the hell he thinks about gays because it changes all the time, etc. But I just, it wasn't looking good. And I thought, well, naturally, I'm sure these activist organizations on campus are just, they, they need help. You know, they have this long list of, of initiatives. And it's, you know, it's Columbia. I mean, look at the 1968, you know, riots that happened that year and, and this long legacy of, like, radical activism. Um, and I went to a, a, an LGBTQ plus uh, meeting, and here were all these folks who were, you know, there were toys and board games 
and crafts and they were their activities and what they were planning were not any kind of protesting or organizing but slumber parties where they were going to be decorating posters for their room and I thought okay well you know this isn't necessarily what I imagined it was going to be and but I just kind of thought okay well that, that's just how it is um, I'll just do my own thing I'll continue on my course and, and keep fighting and working for the cause and but there was also this what I very quickly and again in hindsight because it took me a while to be in this I was there for three and a half years was to realize how fundamental identity was to the dynamics that took place in the classroom, in the on the campus, the culture there was so just uh, uh, imprisoned by this identitarianism that assumed so it was it just treating all of these different groups as just a total monolith. You know, black people thought this way, trans people thought this way, gay people thought this way, men thought this way, women thought this way. And was there lots of talk of microaggressions? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Microaggressions, etc. Safe spaces. Safe spaces I must have heard a gazillion times. The phrase, you know, it's okay to not be okay. You know, these, you know, taking courses with young students who, you know, on their expensive iPhones, the, the cases that would say, this device records police. You know, and I thought, and I thought, okay, well, who are you telling that to? You know, who are you signaling to here? You know, virtue signal was a new, was a new term that I wasn't necessarily familiar with yet, but I thought it was, it was such a performance. So much of it was this performance, and it was a very, it was a very uh, just naive one. It was such a willingness and acceptance of so many people to what I began to see, and I can't generalize with everyone because there were critical thinkers in this university, but to just accept as axiom, as axiomatic, as just the truth, uh, ideological approaches to facts or situations or human rights issues, etc. That when people talk about how universities are indoctrinating these students, I, that's not hyperbole from what, I've, what I experienced there. Because what I started to see was, and when I started to learn about queer theory and started to, to, to get really into the humanities, I was just going along. I'm reading and I'm consuming and I'm thinking, but there's a part of my brain, again, this privilege, if we want to talk about privilege, of being this 30-something person who's lived, thank God I was able to still exercise these critical thinking faculties and I would think that doesn't seem right or I would think well I don't know if that's getting the whole thing so what I would do was I would go down the rabbit hole on my own time and do all this research like okay what are we really talking about here what are we looking at this seems pretty reductive or this seems kind of warped and I realized that so much of what I was learning about history or about issues was being queered, as they say. So I was learning about things through this warped, queered lens. 
So yes, there was some obviously fundamental, like hard history, facts, science-based research, absolutely. But so much of what I, it wasn't, I think that what would have really helped would be if professors from the beginning said, okay, here are, here are facts and history as we know it. What we're going to be doing as our project is queering all of this and looking through it all through the lens of these French intellectuals and post-structuralist thinkers and all of these uh, academics that have carried on this project since the 80s and, and the 90s. I would have loved to just do it then, oh, okay. Rather than kind of scrambling and having to like do so much to really unpack like, oh, this is a way of looking at this. Or, oh, this is a ideologically and politically motivated method of teaching. Because, and listening to your Barry Weiss interview, when you were talking about cultural relativism, and I thought, well, that was a big part of it, too. And I appreciated what you chatted about in that interview because... You know, I'm taking courses called Contemporary Islamic Civilization, Muslim Masculinities, and in these courses, I remember in this discussion section for um, my Muslim Masculinities course, which is a fascinating course, and I did learn a lot, um, the TA was kind of doing a mini lecture. We were discussing violence against women um, in, in the like majority Muslim countries, and and, and what it specifically says in the Quran about okaying male violence against women. Like, what specific instance is it? And, and the, the, what we realized, or what the lesson was, that it wasn't just about these, you know, brown heathens beating their wives and, and having it, you know, approved in, in scripture, which of course is super reductive and, you know, racist and, and etc. But it was about stabilizing home life. So a man is given permission, according to the Quran, to hit his wife to stabilize home life and and to help keep society stable and it's a fragile uh, construct and and etc and you know there was I'm sure more to to this specific lesson and you know some listeners might think oh you've got it wrong or, or that's very short short sighted or very reductive but when I left so we're talking about all of this and when I left there I just thought are, what was that, what was the takeaway from that? Like, where where can we go back to? Okay, well, you know, what's the point of this kind of cultural relativist approach? And what I realized is that a lot of what young activist and academic come activist teachers are predicating their lessons on and their methods of teaching are just a profoundly anti-Western view. Yes, and I was really shocked at some of the takes from black women who appropriate the term feminist in order to trash it. So I refuse to call them liberal feminists or feminists. They're just anti-feminists. There was two 
particular articles I read after the Will Smith and Chris Rock debacle where they were coming out with the worst kind of take on what had happened which leads back to slavery so Will Smith slapped Chris Rock because Chris Rock had disrespected his woman and during slavery black men were not allowed to protect and defend their wives and that we don't understand as white people black love and the depth of black love so it was caveman style justification and it all came down to this new hot take by this black woman two black women who called themselves feminists that spouted the most misogynistic bullshit I've ever heard on it they made it about black men being real men unlike these white men that wouldn't hit another man who disrespected his wife and then feminists like me saying this is macho posturing we're racist and we don't understand slavery and colonialism it was actually beyond belief and both of these women would fit in really well at Columbia they, they, I'm, I'm sure they would. I mean, they're absolutely. You know, another thing that we chatted about in that class was um, uh, in a specific country, and, and it's, it's slipping my mind right now, they had just brought back Sharia law and, and the, the criminalization, or the, really the, the criminalization of homosexuality. And, and, you know, in Sharia law, the penal code is execution. Um, now, if you're just flaming and you're walking down the street, they're not going to, well, necessarily just toss you off the roof. There is a legal and juridical procedure. You have to have like four witnesses or, or be accused multiple times, etc. Um, you have to be the receptive, you know, uh, it's there. I mean, of course, all these draconian ideas. But again, unpacking this, you know, was this, it was, it was, it was the, it was about, we were talking about, let's say, the Western media's response to this story. And, you know, Ellen DeGeneres on her show talking about how this is a travesty and people are going to die. And again, you know, this TA, you know, saying, you know, well, what they don't understand is that there's this, there's this, there's this long and very involved process to ever get to the point of execution. And... And I am all for nuance. Like, I'm a writer first and foremost. That's what I've become. I used to think of myself as an activist, and I don't anymore. I'm a writer. And so I'm all for nuance and looking at the facts on the ground. And so I, you know, understood from studying these things that, yes, you're right. In fact, um, to, to charge and indict um, uh, and you know, criminalize someone as being, you know, have, having committed luat, which is, you know, sodomy. Um, you know, it's, it, it takes, it takes a process. But, you know, I said to her, <laughs> but they should be held responsible for this. You know, I, I understand what you're saying, but, you know, we need to, at the very least, hold people responsible for what, 
not only these laws, okay, so perhaps it might be difficult to entrap gay men in this crime and land an execution, but what is this telling citizens about these practices to have this legislated and enshrined in law? And who is she that, as, that was... The TA, the graduate student who was at Harvard, or uh, I think a Harvard uh, student who was teaching at Columbia, right? right. And I and she said, well, absolutely, absolutely. So and and it was like, it was a struggle to kind of bring it back to. Well, okay, you know, yes, the I'm all for nuance and all looking at that, but can we kind of bring it back to what this, what what the implications of this are? And again, Julie, this, there's this tension there to kind of, between this idea of the East and West, or the West and all the rest. And that is so fundamental to understanding how we got here and how young people are coming to be this version of activist they are, which is not activism, but just being indoctrinated and spewing out, you know, really sexy sound bites that reduces all of these really complex issues to things like abolish the police or trans women or women or all of these 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 you know non-nuanced takes, and it has a lot to do with post-colonialist scholarship and post-structuralism that came out in the 80s and the 90s and how that really took over universities. I went to Norway a few years ago to research a story that I'd seen a tiny little paragraph about in this English, uh, this Norwegian newspaper um, read by British expats. And it was that Norway was about to become the first Jew-free country in Europe since before the war, and that Jews were being driven out. And I thought, what's the story behind this? And I went to Oslo, went into the one kosher restaurant that existed, and it was a bric-a-brac store with six seats in the corner, and there was a kosher store that opened twice a week and that was it that was basically it and I had wondered whether it was because of the fascism the growing fascism um, in Norway do you remember the atrocity that happened on the island yeah and so I went to meet the man that published this fascists articles and he was clearly um, a deeply racist person, really spooky, and I talked to a lot of people about what had scared Jews, and it turned out to be a different story. It was that the Jews since the war that had lived in Norway had enjoyed support from white liberals, from white leftists, a Gentile, not necessarily white, but Norway is a very white country. and. That had stopped when all of these university students, mainly men but also some women, decided that they would show solidarity to the 
quite a large number of young Arab men uh, coming in from Syria and other countries in the Middle East seeking asylum. And a lot of these young Arab men that were visible in Norway were burning the Israeli flag outside the Israeli embassy and shouting all kinds of aggressive slogans in Arabic. So these Norwegian students just thought, my enemy's enemy, right? Um, we hate Zionists, we hate Israelis, we hate the Israeli government, we hate the American government for supporting the State of Israel, and were marching with these uh, Arab men that were holding signs up, saying things like, kill the Jews, and shouting, burn Jews, Hitler was right, and these idiots did not have any understanding whatsoever of what this was about, how rabidly anti-Semitic this was. And the visible Jews no longer felt safe or defended by the uh, Gentile liberals. Mm. And this is the same kind of deal, I think. Mm -hmm. It is. I agree. Yeah. So what, what then happened? You, you stuck it out. Did you start to feel at any particular stage, I'm not sure I can cope with this, or did you want to just push back against it? I wasn't going anywhere, so I was constantly afraid. I had this, it, I'm sure, a very irrational fear that I was going to be kicked out for my wrong speak or wrong think or thought crime. And, you know, because I would sort of push back, um, most of my professors, actually all of them, including this TA that I just mentioned, loved me, and they loved my presence in the classroom and the and the way that the conversation that I brought to discussion. They would write in my papers. It's so nice to get a different perspective or to, they saw me doing the intellectual work to kind of argue certain points or really engage with what we were learning and talking about. Um, so that was wonderful. I stuck close to the professors, um, but I did feel, you know, always that fear, oh, here we go, I, I could misspeak, and it could become a campus scandal, you know, because I had seen these things happen, you know, with either the campus newspaper taking it up, and this person was rant ranting this racist stuff, or this person this, or, or, you know, when I went to go join the newspaper, the first thing that the, the senior editor said, the first thing, was, um, we've gotten so many professors fired. That was her first thing that she said in terms of why everyone here for this information session about why you should come join us because we've there's a lot of fuckery that goes on in this campus and we've been able to get so many professors fired. And did you ask what their crimes were? No, I just sat there and the, this is my like second week in school and I'm thinking to myself, well, uh, I, I, it was so just. I don't really. I, it was fundamentally, you know, call me a wimp, call me a, um, a suck up to the the establishment or this. Inst I mean, who knows? But I thought I'm here to learn, mm -hmm. and I'm here to become a productive, you know, 
uh, intellect, intellectual, whatever writer is really what I was looking to do. I was studying creative writing, nonfiction, and I thought, you know, I'm not here to to get. That's not my job. I'm not here to get people fired. And also, why are you here to get people fired? You're a child. You know, I mean, you have this incredible opportunity to learn at this institution. People would kill to be in your shoes. I mean, just maybe perhaps sell their souls to be able to learn at an institution in New York in this, what, number fourth in the, in the, in the world, you know, ranked university. And your, your project is to, is to toss people out um, in power, I didn't think that that was a necessarily very uh, an admirable speaking truth to power kind of approach to 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 that. So, um, but I, I did. I, I was fearful and afraid, and you know, what happened, Julie, was when I talked to you about like that kind of mental health stuff, the OCD and the scrupulosity and all of these things. It really, I started experiencing the symptoms again that I had really gotten so much control over because suddenly I was a bad, a bad one. One, I was the cis man, I was a cis gay, which was, I, I you know, very quickly came to see what was wrong with that. Um, and, you know, mind you, I'm, I suppose cisgender or more gender nonconforming because I was a extremely effeminate little kid and a survival tactic when I was young was to defeminize myself at the ages of 12 and 13 because of the, just the immense fear that paralyzed me. So to now turn around and be in LGBT activist organizations or classrooms where suddenly I'm called this label cis and condemned for my gender conformity was just too, it was too much of a mirror. I've said this before, you know, they called me cis in the same cadence that the kids would call me fag. There was no difference, they would hiss it. And I thought, you know, just this, this totally degrading and reductive way of, of viewing my, what I think is just a complex human experience, like we all have. And so to just, to, to in, indulge that was, you know, and to invite that kind of um, that ideology in was just really regressive. So there was a there was like an, an undercurrent of let's protect or shield the women or prop them up, and and regardless of what they have to say, and shut down and degrade the the male the, the male voice. And I thought. That uh, turns out, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that we're very much going to be in agree agreement about things. So it was almost like it, it, everything was predicated on that dynamic. And I found it to be really um, counterintuitive to like what I thought feminism was, or at least how it just inherently played out in my life and my experience. Because it's the opposite of what it's supposed to be, right. in my view. So I wrote a book called Feminism for Women mm -hmm. because at the moment we've got a feminism that benefits men more in universities though. And this is what is really interesting about the piece I read about your experience through academia, mm -hmm. that hideous 
totalitarian bullying, right. that horrible fear that I've experienced before, where you know you're going to be called a racist mm -hmm. and you're going to be deemed the worst person ever and that people are going to believe it and that women appropriate the term feminist in order to say you are a misogynistic, white feminist, bullshit merchant, whatever they say. Right. My last year, I was so, so, it got so bad that I finally entered trauma therapy. Um, and I did a year of what was called EMDR, which is a form of trauma therapy that involves sensory stuff. And what I realized was, is that this groupthink and this fundamentalism and this ideological fundamentalism and this purity policing that I encountered on campus just had re-triggered all of the, the, the same symptoms that I had from being in this fundamentalist, ideologically fundamentalist, purity policing, social groupthink cult that I was in as a young person. And it was the same type of, um, of atmosphere and culture. And I responded in the same way. That's really interesting because many of us have said this is like a religion, it's, mm -hmm. it's a cult. It is. It's cultist behavior, isn't it? It absolutely is. And it's absolutely cultist behavior, it's dogma, and it is, you know, it's, diff it's so interesting because what's, what really differentiates it from like traditional, let's say, Christianity, which I don't have a problem with. I have a problem with dogma and ideological fundamentalism and the way that people use that to, to, to oppress other people. But at least with Christianity, there's the possibility of salvation. Yes. <laughs> with this, there's no salvation. There's no grace. There's no mercy. There's no forgiveness. Um, so I did this year of trauma therapy, and it liberated me. Um, not just from all of this groupthink and, and what I was encountering now, but what I had come up in and what still had its grips on me as a gay person, as just a human being, that moralizing something's wrong, something's evil, something's bad about you inherently, that shame that just infected my entire worldview that I could never shake. It actually, that experience in university was what allowed me to really finally really get get unstuck in all of that. So after I graduated, I, I was accepted to this, this MFA creative writing program, which I was thrilled about, but I was immensely nervous about because I thought I'm very afraid that I'm going to encounter the same, if not worse, kind of culture. And sure enough, I did. And it was, in fact, in many ways even worse. Um, and I lasted for a semester. I wrote a piece for my Substack, which I think had nine subscribers at the time, called The New Homophobia in Higher Education. And I talked about different dynamics that I encountered um, in this new kind of weird anti-gay movement and using pseudonyms, and I put it behind a paywall. I had like five subscribers, they were family and old friends, but I thought, you know, and, and here's what led me to write it. 
I had visited home someone in Maryland and a, and a friend we sat up talking and I was telling her about what I was encountering and Julie now mind you yes I did this I'm, I did doing I am still in the process I, I had been in the process of doing this trauma therapy and I'm getting better and I'm like and I'm still just you know speaking my mind and thinking 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 and, and, and exercising my my intellectual autonomy and just trying to grow and get better but I'm suicidal and so I'm, I'm visiting a friend and I'm telling her how confusing all of this is how unsettling how wrong I find so much of these tactics are and how immensely alienating it is and she said you need to write about this she said, you have to. And I said, I, I can't write about this specifically. She said, well, there are other people that are going through this, I'm sure. So at least it will help them. So I thought, well, I have these subscribers on my Substack who are just paying me out of kindness, like $5 a month or whatever. And I haven't created any content, so I'll write this for them. Well, someone in the program saw it, bought it, took screenshots of the problematic parts, disseminated it around the program, and I get an email, workshops canceled, DEI, diverse equity and inclusion is involved, they're investigating this matter. The next day I get a, an email from my professor saying, you know, you may have, under, you may have learned that some of your, your fellow students are upset about, about what you wrote, could you send us the full draft so that so we could you send us the article so that we could see more than just the screenshots? And I thought to myself, okay, here is this esteemed writing program where the writing professors canceled a writing workshop because one of their writers wrote something that they didn't even read. It Orwellian doesn't actually do it anymore. I thought you didn't even read this? You did not even read it. So I sent it off and they said, Could you would you mind if we shared this with the the, the, the whole program, you know, with the with your cohort so they can all get an idea because we need to have a conversation about this. And I said, That's fine, you know. And and you know, it's funny because it's like, here's a piece that I write called The New Homophobia in Higher Education and the effect that this had on me. And nobody in diversity and inclusion contacted me. You know what I mean? Nobody says, oh, this is a, this is a, a, there was no, well, there was private validation. Okay, I will say that, but. Don't talk to me about private validation. That which was maddening. Um, but when they said, you know, we have to have a diversity, a DEI monitor discussion about this to move on so everybody can invoice their things. And what I knew was, I knew it was going to be a struggle session where I was just going to be, and at that point, Julie, it, in fact, going back to, you know, I was saying Barry West earlier, I remember her, her writing something about how there comes a point where you just need to walk away. You know, people say, stay, talk back, fight back, but there does come a point in certain situations where you have to say, I'm out of here. And when I thought to myself, I need to get out of here the immense, the relief that I felt in my body, and I said it out loud to my husband, and it was like a glimpse of hope. It was like the first glimpse of hope that I got. 
and I, I sent an email. I said, how do I, how do I withdraw? They said, and I got a, a letter back from the, the head of the department that, um, you know, we really want you to stay. It does require to have this conversation, but I know it'll be fruitful and we can all voice. And I said, my decision's final. That's it. And I was out of there and it was, it was, I was like finally free after six years or so, or at least five and a half, five years in this, in the, the level of elite academia that I was in, the community college was not this experience at all. You don't need the course anyway, because your writing is brilliant. And who were these people making complaints? Were they the usual blue fringe mob? Yeah. They, them. Right. You know, it was people that I called out in, or, you know, wrote about under a pseudonym and, and respectfully, you know, just saying this is what's occurred in these classrooms and this is what I think is, is a symptom of this new iteration of homophobia that's hard to encapsulate or really communicate. But I know what it is. Like, I've seen this before, you know? And I know, I know what this looks like. And so I wrote, um, I wrote instances where, um, where I thought there's something pervasive here happening. And I think people are gonna be hurt by this. And I think that this is unfair to um, students who don't um, subscribe to this new weird ideology that is fundamentally flawed, regressive, fuels stereotypes, and really kind of, to me, spits in the face of a lot of the work that gays and lesbians and feminists have done to unroot society from these like rigid gender norms that really do hurt people and, you know, in a way oppress people. Thank you.